Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. For this cancer podcast, Wessex LMCs have collaborated with the Wessex Cancer Alliance. Welcome to this audio podcast, uh, which is going to focus on cancer. So I'm joined by two colleagues today. So uh, Matt, welcome. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, thanks, Nigel. I'm Matthew Hayes. I'm the medical director of the Wessex Cancer Alliance, and I work as a, a urological surgeon at UHS in my clinical time. And Richard, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Nigel. I'm Richard Reap. I'm a, a GP, uh, formerly at the Whiteley Surgery and our sessional GP, and also the primary care advisor for Cancer Research UK and the Wessex Cancer Alliance. And cancer is a really important subject for general practice and the wider primary care, which is why uh, we're going to do a series of podcasts focused on things that hopefully will be of interest to you. So we do know that one in two people will have cancer in their lifetime, and it's now the commonest cause of premature death in the UK, with sadly about 166,000 people who die from cancer every year. And currently, only about 55% of people are diagnosed at stage one or two. We also know that about 50% of those who are diagnosed with cancer will now live uh, 10 or more years. Some 40 years ago, that uh, the survival rate was only about 25%. So things have improved, but obviously we're looking for them to improve even more. And the ambition in the long-term plan that was published in 2018-19 was that 75% of cancers were to be diagnosed at stage one or two, which would mean about 55,000 more people would survive their cancer and live beyond five years. So that's a really ambitious target that we would all like to see reached. And, you know, when you're looking after cancer in general practice, you obviously see a wide variety of cancers. And the sort of big four that we see are bowel, breast, lung and prostate. And the treatment for cancer once they're diagnosed has improved, obviously, and that's contributed to the improved survival rate. But actually, if we're going to achieve some of these ambitious targets, we need to do more than just improve the management of cancer, particularly uh, when the person's referred to hospital. So the screening agenda, actually even before screening, if we could prevent more cancers, and uh, we'll talk to Richard about that later, but also about earlier diagnosis of cancer. So a full-time GP working would expect to see about eight to nine new cancers per year in their surgery. And now with the increased survival rate, you'll obviously be looking after a significantly more uh, number of people who've survived their cancer or who are living through cancer treatments. And sadly, some will obviously be end of life care. So Matt, can I turn to you first? The the long-term plan, um, what's your view about how we're gonna hit this 75% target of diagnosing uh, cancer at stage one or two? And has that been sort of knocked a bit off target with the challenges of COVID? Um, Yeah, it certainly has, Nigel. I think um, the reality is it's our sort of primary mandate. That's what the Cancer Alliances are there to achieve. It's our our raison d'etre, if you like. And of course, it's going to be the only way we'll avoid those extra cancer deaths within five years of diagnosis. Um, Interestingly, the biggest winners, um, if we are successful, are going to need to be colorectal prostate and lung and uh, and our listeners might be surprised by the middle one but if we can get stage four prostate cancers diagnosed at stage three we'd save nearly five thousand lives a year across the uk so it's it, 
it's a really potentially big winner. Um, we're already doing pretty well. Um, we've created, with the help of both Dorset and Hampshire and the Isle of Wight data analysts, a staging dashboard, which suggested actually we're probably closer in Wessex to around 65% of cancers diagnosed at stage one or two. And our emergency presentation rate with cancer is down around about 10%, which compared to the 25% of the rest of England um, is good. But um, there's still a heck of a long way to go. And um, the reality is we're only going to achieve that with the help of all of your colleagues in primary care. Um, as you very well know, having written most of it, we have a primary care strategy, which we need to implement. Uh, we need to upskill the public, and we've got a program of work around that called Communities Against Cancer, where we're resourcing champions in communities to, uh, to tell people what to look out for. Um, we've got quite a focus on reducing variation because we know there's quite a big problem with those in the community with learning disabilities, with serious mental illness, and, uh, and also in particular with the homeless. Um, a, a good focused example of where we need to do better would be in the use of FIT uh, in patients presenting with colorectal symptomatology. Uh, but we're also looking at other case-finding work in, in lung cancer and prostate cancer, as well as the colorectal pathways. Um, I think Richard's going to perhaps allude to this in a while, but the other big thing we need to do is upskill all our, all our healthcare professionals and the use of Gateway C and some of the clinical decision tools, I think, uh, will help us a lot. There's, there's a bit of a mythology around early detection all being about innovations and making big wins with big technologies. But actually, if we can get the, the public to present in a timely way, if we can shorten some of the pathways in secondary care, get the, get the referral guidance right, and in particular, if we can do things like optimise screening and risk stratify people appropriately, we've, I think we've got a reasonable chance of getting there. I mean, Richard, it strikes me that for some of this, it's not about GPs having to do more work or transferring work, because some of these patients who, you know, turn out to have cancer may come in three or four times, and when you try and in, get them through the system can be quite time-consuming in that sort of, not only for the patient in their pathway, but for the GP. And the more we streamline these things, make them easier remove some of those barriers, then presumably not only will we get better outcomes for patients, but might actually um, not increase the workload of GPs, might not necessarily reduce it very much, but uh, might help. What, do, what are your views on that? Yeah, and potentially you've got an area where we have a win-win-win. We can, if we diagnose patients earlier after less consultations, it's obviously less consultations for us and our extended team. Uh, if we diagnose earlier, it costs the NHS less and quite substantially less in quite a few cancer types, uh, but also patient outcomes are so much better. So we can tick the patient satisfaction box, we can tick the GP satisfaction box, and we can tick the chance of the exchequer's satisfaction box. And I think I, I pick up on what Matt says about, um, you know, there's often a discussion throughout yours and my career about general practice versus primary care, and often they're interchangeable. But truly now... You know, this isn't just about cancer and GPs. It's also about our wider team as, as we've got more healthcare professionals involved in caring for patients. 
we need to take that message and that education out and, and make people more aware of, you know, when people present, think think cancer some of the time or perhaps all of the time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. I, th- I think as we get our extended teams and uh, I've had some fantastic colleagues uh, from nursing and paramedic backgrounds, uh, really important that they're on song with the sort of the early signs that could be cancer, but also our first uh, line uh, musculoskeletal teams, they also need to be aware of some of the musculoskeletal symptoms that could be caused by an underlying cancer. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about fit testing and where it should be done. But, but I can absolutely see that, you know, if you're in general practice and you're arranging a battery of tests for somebody with lower GI symptoms, actually doing a fit test doesn't take any more effort, but actually might significantly help you in the early detection, diagnosis, and potentially reduce the number of uh, appointments that people keep coming and back as their symptoms aren't settling. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think if we can... Uh, essentially evaluate a patient on less consultations. Again, it's a win-win-win all round. Okay, let's just look at the the QOF and the PCN DARES, which is focused on early detection, obviously it's run for a, a second year because of COVID. Um, so, you know, when you look at the uh, sort of outline of the sort of main bits of it, um, just take you through one or two of the areas. So, um, NG12, the NICE Guidance 12, um, do you think GPs abide by that or use that as a reference document or do you think we could be better at that? Uh, I think there's, we're doing okay, but there's certainly room for improvement. Uh, there was an in- interesting study that came out of the Exeter GP academic unit, which actually shows that patients who are diagnosed with cancer who had two-week weight qualifying symptoms, only two-thirds of them are actually referred through a two-week pathway. So uh, across the board, room for improvement. I don't know if that's been substratified for different regions, uh, but certainly I think we can up our game further. Matt, do you think the nationally there was the rapid diagnostic service, which we've got a rapid investigation service. Do, do you think that's beginning to show some benefit? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so in the Wessex model, which, um, which as you know, has been – it built in a kind of virtual way. So there's a there's a referral triage mechanism that allows patients to be investigated locally where, from wherever they've been referred. We've had over 300 referrals so far um, into that service. And we've got 12 confirmed cancers and another six suspected cancer diagnoses uh, awaiting pathway completion. So for those nearly 20 patients, that's it's it's been a life changer. And I mean, for people listening, you know, in the past as GPs, this is for people with sort of vague symptoms uh, who didn't fit any of the two week pathways. And many of us would have, you know, done investigations that uh, referred them. The patient would wait, couldn't always um, go down a single specialty. So you could bounce around a bit. So not only was it poor for the patient, but often poor for the clinician as well. So that's, that's, very positive news, Matt. Yeah. Um, one one thing you, you you talked about data, and uh, much as sometimes it can be a bit tedious having lots of information, data can be really important if it's presented in a way because it does ask the question of teams and particularly general practice. So, you know, we've been going around supporting the PCNs, looking at some of their cancer data, but you know, we've used the Public Health England fingertips data, which. 
Unfortunately, some of it is 18 months out of date, which doesn't then have the impact that perhaps it should do. Do, do you think we'll get to a position where we'll get uh, more, more up-to-date data that we'll be able to share with people, which will have greater impact? Yeah, definitely. We're, we're working quite hard on that. So, um, so the national uh, cancer waiting times um, data sets are usually two months lagging. Uh, the staging data is often even longer than that. Um, so our staging dashboard um, is real time. Uh, our cancer waiting times dashboard is real time. Um, the the other big area that we're looking at is inequalities in healthcare and trying to establish a mechanism for 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 describing that in a in a more contemporaneous way. So yes, it's it is a real challenge, I think, because to get people to buy into the data, they have to feel confident that they're talking about something that's now, not six months, 12 months old, which is yeah. irrelevant. Yeah. Richard, the um, clinical decision support tools is mentioned in it. What, 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 what are those do you use and, and would you recommend? So there are a couple that are particularly good. There's uh, the risk assessment tool, which used to be in a, a mouse map format, and there are a few of those still knocking around. But there's a desk easel option, but also an electronic online option. And that was developed by the uh, Professor Willie Hamilton and his team down in Exeter, which can be really helpful for sort of symptom and investigation combinations. But the other one that has, uh, has legs is the Q Cancer, uh, which is an online facility. Of course, you have to be thinking about cancer before you log into it. Uh, but that can be really helpful in letting you be aware of uh, cancer symptoms, but also which direction you should be referring where it's not necessarily entirely clear. What about um, the cancer maps? Yeah, so again, the uh, Ben Noble, a colleague uh, from CRUK, he's developed a, a the sort of the spider web cancer maps, and they can be really helpful where you uh, plug in the demographics of the patient, so age and gender, but also the symptom bundle. And if there are uh, blood test findings, uh, they can go on. And that will then highlight those areas that are sort of NG12 qualifying. And again, give you an idea as to where you can most appropriately refer the patient. And there's also a body map, isn't there? So you could have those sort of tools on, on your PC and use them in a <coughs> consultation or even outside when you're scratching your head thinking what to do. Yeah, again, uh, CRUK have done a really helpful uh, body map that can either be online or they uh, have an A3 poster, which can be strategically positioned behind your patient's head in your consulting room when you get back to face-to-face -to -face consulting. Okay, let's, let's move on to a um, really important subject about safety netting. So, you know, one of the challenges is the number of patients uh, somebody's going to see in a week, that it's quite easy to think, oh, right, uh, I'll refer you. So you send your referral letter off and then forget about the patient and then they fall between all sorts of stools within the system. So um, not surprisingly to me that safety netting was put into the PCN DES. So, so what do you do about safety netting patients you see in the surgery? So we have a system where if we're doing an investigation that is to potentially review a, a, a potential cancer diagnosis. So for instance, you're doing a chest X-ray in someone who you're uh, thinking they might have lung cancer. We actually use the um, SNOMED code uh, and a, within a template that says that we're making a referral to exclude cancer. 
And then that then gets followed up by our wonderful admin team so that if either we haven't processed it properly or if the patient doesn't turn up or there's a hospital glitch and we don't get the result back, uh, we know that it hasn't come back. Likewise, if you're making a two-week wait referral, one of the systems we've introduced across our PCN is that we actually line the patient up to have a four-week review to either deal with their uh, unfortunate cancer diagnosis or if they've been given the clear, you have a teachable moment to actually then address perhaps prevention and lifestyle issues. Yes, they're probably quite receptive at that time because they're so relieved that they haven't got cancer. Absolutely. They think they've got out of jail and that's the time that you can really look at uh, behaviour change that may reduce their risk in the future. And I know a recent study showed that um, I think only about 55% or 60% of people were given the two-week wait leaflet to explain why it's so important. How do you make sure your patients get the leaflet? So we print it off real time with the patient in front of us. Uh, if it's been, there are, will be an occasional remote uh, consultation. Say, for instance, if you're having a chat with a lady over the age of 30 who has a breast slump, there is quite a good case to say that you don't need to examine that patient because even if you were to examine the patient, whether you find a breast slump or not, you're probably going to make a two-week break referral on that basis. Uh, but in that situation, I would either email it to them or leave it for them to pick up at the uh, surgery reception. And I think some practices have got a system with the SMS text messages that when they refer, they send the leaflet by, by text message. Yeah, you can send it through the AccuRx or similar system. You can have it as a link to it on a text message. Okay, let, let's go on to screening. Matt, how, how are we doing locally with the um, national screening uh, programs? Um, so screening was, was impacted by COVID, as everything else was. Um, the programs were effectively paused, although we weren't allowed to use that sort of terminology for a while, but realistically they were. Um, cervix was first to recover, perhaps not surprisingly, in terms of um, numbers and the necessary technology. Um, bowel has pretty much recovered, and we're just getting into the age extension imminently across Wessex, where the, whereby the age threshold will come down to 50 plus. Um, breast is recovering more slowly and the projections suggest that this probably is going to be an issue until the middle of next year. Um, and of course, a lot of that is down to the requirements of social distancing around uh, the mammography units. Um, so it, it's, it, it's not as bad as it might have been. Uh, but of course, uh, if, you're, if you're awaiting a screening mammogram, that's, uh, that's of no consolation. Um, we know there's quite a lot of, again, variation in terms of deprivation. So Southampton and Portsmouth, and interestingly, Ferrum and Gosport for breast um, have had lower uptakes than, um, than the rest of Wessex for the, for the time frame. Um, so, uh, yes, it's a challenge. Uh, you, you see that the breast screening units often park in the car parks of big supermarkets and they're massive vehicles which does mean often they don't get into the areas of social deprivation. Um, yeah. So it did, did make me wonder whether they couldn't, uh, you know, if you look at some of the machines we had years ago, how they've um, made them much smaller, whether actually some of the breast screening could be done in a smaller van, which could get to more communities. Yeah, potentially. I, mean, I have to say it's not, it's, it's not a bit of technology that I'm particularly familiar with. So uh 
Yeah, I'd have to defer, to, to defer to other colleagues on that one. We'll stay clear of the uh, technology bit. Um, Richard, what do you, you know, I've looked at the data across Hampshire and as Matt says, there is quite a significant variation uh, of uptake of screening for all three programmes from the more affluent areas to the more deprived areas. Um, what, what do you think we could do both as a cancer alliance, but also supporting PCNs and others to increase the uptake in those areas where it's lowest? Yeah, and the whole um, issue of screening uptake is really interesting. So there is a very marked demographic gradient. But if you look at, across a given level of deprivation, there's actually variation even across that. Uh, so we know that if practices engage with screening and endorse it, that you can get a between a 6 and 8% uplift in engagement. Uh, so if the practice notices a non-attender to actually engage with that patient and that can I and it lends itself to our lovely social prescribing colleagues uh, but if we get engagement with the patients and either telephone them or sms them or even send them a letter that you will get increased engagement uh, but i think if we are going to do this in a strategic manner we would very much target those areas of deprivation where the uptake levels are lower and presumably, Matt, if you look at those areas of social deprivation, some of the risk factors are greater, you know, the level of smoking and other uh, behaviours that might, um, if they weren't absent, would, would reduce the number of cancers. So we've almost got a double whammy of less screening and a higher number of people that with who are at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, a higher risk of everything else um, yeah. that are systems are looking at uh, in terms of preventing cardiovascular disease and premature death for other causes. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's completely multifactorial, but uh, the, the commonalities are the same. And you mentioned two really important areas, which is learning disabilities and serious mental illness. And I think it's quite, a, quite common in the past for those uh, groups to be excluded from screening, where actually their levels of ill health and health inequalities and uh, unfortunately, cancers are higher, not lower. So we've got to make sure we do all we can to get uh, those groups into screening uh, as far as possible. Yeah, we, we have. And um, it's one of the areas that we, we're focusing on with uh, learning disability health facilitators working um, with, with some of the practice nurses. And we've got a, an educational program that's uh, being developed with um, HEE around exactly that. Richard, I was quite taken with um, something on CRUK's website uh, when I was looking around it, about 40% of cancers being preventable. Um, yeah. And, you know, quite often we, we don't really think about the prevention agenda. Well, just, just quickly run me through what, from a CRUK thing, point of view, you think we could reduce the, the incidence of cancer? Yeah, so uh, in England, it's about 38% of cancers are felt to be preventable, uh, and those would be preventable through behaviour change. Interestingly, we've moved the terminology on from lifestyle because that suggests sometimes that there's choice, uh, but actually behaviours are very often learnt and are part of the sort of the microculture within which you live and were born into. So people won't necessarily have chosen the behaviours they adopt, but they are amenable to change. And we know that very simple techniques, uh, for instance, uh, giving very brief advice uh, can be really effective and takes up very little time of the clinician, because essentially the clinician's role is a signposting one 
rather than actually doing the work itself. The lowest hanging fruit uh, is still smoking, which is still by far and away the biggest preventable cause of cancer and actually the biggest preventable cause of death altogether uh, because it is a co-risk for pretty much every other long-term condition. And if we can address that, uh, we've done amazingly uh, over the past eight years or so where prevalence of smoking has dropped from 21% to about 14%. So about a third of those who were smoking eight years ago have given up, which is just amazing. And it doesn't get profiled very often. Uh, so we have done really well, but we've still got that 14% who, if we could guess a similar fraction of that dealt with, we would save a lot of misery and a lot of uh, lives and a lot of cancers. Yeah, and, and we did a campaign, I think, last year about quit for COVID, which was about the risk of COVID and smoking. And we tied that in with lung cancer. And what we did was got text message sent out to smokers uh, in Hampshire. And we had about 500 people then booked into the smoking cessation clinic. So we worked with the local authority, which, you know, really reinforces that message. You said rather than don't bother telling people about smoking because all those that have given up have given up. Um, that, you know, very brief advice can have a significant impact. And we are going to do some more training about that over the next year to try and support that. Yeah, and there, there is an aspiration that by 2030, we'll have the prevalence down below 5%, which by WHO uh, definition means that you have become a non-smoking country and culture. So there, there is an aspiration to get it down from the 14% to 5%. What are the other big things in prevention then? So if smoking's the largest and you know, that counts the most, what, what other things would you, would you so identify? In, in second place, there's uh, obesity and overweight, which is now the second biggest preventable cause of cancer and all the other long-term conditions as before. And again, we know that very brief interventions and very brief advice works in this arena as well. Um, so if you if we engage, patients are receptive and do respond. So part of the PCN DES and the um, QAF is about a quality improvement activity. So if if you were sitting there, Matt and Richard, you know what what are the areas you think would you know uh, not too difficult to do in terms of quality improvement, but you think would make a significant difference in terms of the cancer agenda that we're all trying to deliver. I'll defer, I'll defer to Richard on that one because I'm in no way a primary care expert. I wouldn't pretend to be one. I think we're educating you, Matt. You're, 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 <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> you're understanding more about uh, what we get up to. Richard? So I think uh, screening is a very obvious one. And the difference for bowel cancer, colorectal cancer, between an early diagnosis and a late diagnosis in terms of outcomes is really marked. It's very polarised. So in very broad terms, if you make a, a stage one diagnosis in bowel cancer, you've got an over 90% five-year survival rate. A stage four is less than 10% five-year survival rate. So if we can get that stage shift, huge impact, and screening is one such way. And for very historical reasons, we set a target of screening of 60% for bowel screening, which is woefully low, and we should all be aspiring to over 75% of our patients engaging with it. We know it works, it saves lives and relatively easy to do. And then the other area, I would just crack into the smoking and uh, really engage with uh, brief advice across uh, to equip all, all clinicians to engage with brief advice and really get our patients engaged and get them uh, off smoking. And, you know, moving from faecal or got bloods to fit testing for screening is much more acceptable. So, again, that should 
help increase the uptake. Matt, you mentioned prostate cancer. And if we're looking at, you know, the big four and we're looking at, um, as Richard describes, stage shift, is, is there anything in prostates that you feel could be done better, which we could look at a sort of quality improvement activity in general practice? Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the realities is we know that there are subsets of the population who are at greater risk of certain cancers and, and prostate's no exception. Um, so we know that ethnicity plays a very big part in this. Um, we know that pre-existing lower urinary tract symptoms, uh, those with a strong family history of prostate cancer, but also of ovarian and breast cancer, um, can certainly set men off on the wrong route in terms of their prostate cancer risk. So we're, we're quite interested in looking at the primary care health record and seeing if we can start to uh, pull out some of these men and, uh, and proactively engage them in thinking about their current and future prostate health risk. I think the other challenge is that um, we know that the largest gap currently in the missing two-week wait referrals, if you like, uh, is in the urology pathway and specifically in, in the prostate bit of the urology pathway. And it seems likely, at least in part, that that's because of a perceived, if not real, um, certainly a perceived uh, difficulty in accessing uh, primary care during the pandemic, which I think means that there are a, a number of men out there who've who've not come through um, in the way that they perhaps might have done beforehand, and, and we need to find another way of of encouraging them back back in. Um, Sorry, Matt. Go on. No, that's all right. So, so we're also looking at the potential for opening up some of these opportunities in um, in diagnostics. Uh, to uh, patients in the in the community without necessarily having to have recourse to seeing a GP first. So, for example, you know, if you're if you're a man who has self-assessed your your risk as being high, um, then perhaps you don't necessarily need to to wait to see somebody to get a PSA blood test done. For example, maybe you should be able to access that. Uh, so, people who've got directly. a first degree relative with prostate cancer. And which, which ethnic groups are much higher risk? So Afro-Caribbean men are at a very significantly increased risk, both of developing prostate cancer and also of developing uh, potentially life-threatening prostate cancer and succumbing to it. Right. So, that, so you know, looking at those two groups within your practice could, could potentially make a significant difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And better diagnostics in terms of improved access would also help not only earlier diagnosis, but actually make, um, dare I say, the GP's job easier in, in terms of yeah. accessing an answer to a question. Certainly. Okay. Um, the last the last few minutes, have you got any sort of latest news items that you'd, you'd like to share with any of the listeners, things that are, that are happening that you're either involved in or interested in that uh, are topical? Richard? Um, Oh, well, Matt, sorry. Yeah, go on, Matt. Okay, well, sorry, sorry, I mean to interrupt, but I, I think that it's important that we continue to give positive news um, to those out there who are engaged in the diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer. Um, that there is, uh, I think, sometimes a sense that we're kind of banging a drum and, and, and trying to make 
people uh, pay attention in a way that can sometimes come, come across as a bit negative. The reality is that, that Wessex is doing great. And the reason that we're doing great is because we've got fantastic uh, clinical teams providing services in a way that is in the, in the best interests of patients. And at the last round of cancer waiting times data that we were uh, looking at, which is from April, uh, in Wessex, we were the only cancer alliance to achieve the 62-day standard. Uh, we were the best performing cancer alliance in terms of 31 days and with the faster diagnosis standard too. So it's a very good news story. And I, I think it, it's important that, um, that that those of your colleagues listening uh, feel the feel the good vibes. Uh, you're doing a great job out there. That's Good to hear, particularly when, you know, the pressures of COVID and sometimes the media is not always very um, positive towards general practice, should we say? Exactly. So, yeah, I, I would also, having looked at the data, would, would reinforce what you're saying. You know, we're, we have generally um, done well in many of those things despite the COVID, and we, we're lucky to have very good standards of general practice locally, which actually are reflected in that. And actually, I, you know, I, I would also say that through COVID, um, our working relationship with hospitals and consultants um, has become stronger. I, I won't use the word improve because it wasn't bad before, but I think COVID has brought us closer together as a clinical community. And I know through your leadership in the Cancer Alliance, primary and secondary care are working much more as well, which are the outcome of that has got to be better for the patients, but actually it makes it more enjoyable and more fulfilling as a clinician as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Richard? Yeah, yeah and it, it, it gets, we, we move from that sort of primary secondary care divide. We get rid of the, the first words and we just provide care, uh, which of course is what we all get out of bed in the morning to do. Uh, we're there for our patients, we're the advocates for them, and we want to improve their outcomes and improve their experience. Uh, in terms of innovation, just today, we in Wessex, together with um, Thames Valley, uh, the GRAIL programme has just been launched, which has the potential to be really exciting. Uh, so for patients who are going to be referred into the Rapid Investigation Service, uh, we are part of a symptomatic trial, where as well as the usual workup, they also have this GRAIL test, which is potentially going to find new biomarkers for cancers and will help in that diagnostic process to identify where a cancer may be developing. So is this what was in the Daily Mail a couple of weeks ago? Have your blood test detect your cancer? Yeah, I mean, we might be heading for that. And certainly if we're as part of the plan to get those 75% of patients diagnosed at stage one or stage two by 2028, uh, the GRAIL test and similar biomarker tests are part of that journey uh, to try and reach that uh, aspirational target so it's a case of watch this space and we'll see uh, whether it has legs and how quickly it gets running that's great i mean i think one of the challenges for general practice is to try and keep up to date with all these things and you know i've learned working with the cancer alliance actually the phenomenal amount of work that's going on uh, from all sorts of specialties and all sorts of people in huge number of areas and trying to keep uh, tabs on what's going on and actually the impact is making is quite difficult. But as Matt says, I think there's lots of positive things happening locally, um, which which will support all of us. So yeah. can I thank 
Can I thank Matt and Richard for giving up their time to talk to me today? Uh, hopefully for people listening, this is interesting and informative. Uh, and thank you very much indeed. And thank you to Wessex LMCs for hosting the podcast and uh, helping us with the recording. Thanks very much. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.